delighted that you're here with us this morning. We've been studying for the last several weeks the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. If you're not used to using a Bible, the book of Hebrews, the passage we'll be looking at, can be found on page 1007 in these black Bibles around you. 1007, we'll be primarily looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. As we do so, I want to ask, have you ever heard the phrase, yeah, I'm a spiritual person, but, you know, I don't like organized religion. Is that familiar enough to any of us around here? Or, hey, I'm fine with Jesus, but I just can't stand the church. Sometimes I feel like I can understand why people say those things or feel that way. Because I think if we honestly just assess where things are at at different times in church history and current state of the church, we look at God's Word and see what it says about what the church should look like, and then we look at examples of churches, and it's like, yeah, something is wrong here. And so I could understand that if you've had negative experiences about church, or you know people that have had negative experiences Could it be that it's not organized religion per se, or the church in particular, but really it's us. It's us who have gotten off, and therefore it's not that God's plans were bad or that the church is a bad idea, but rather our attempts to, I don't know, do church. I heard an illustration this week that I think helps kind of convey this idea. Have you all ever been to a, a band or orchestra concert? Nods ahead? Yes, I've been to a... You know that beginning part of the band or orchestra concert where they're all tuning? You know, my dad's a real goofball. Every time we would go to a band or orchestra concert, uh, everybody would be tuning or whatever, and then uh, there would be a pause, and then, you know, the conductor would walk out. But before the conductor would work out, he'd, like, start applauding because he's like, oh, that, that wasn't a score, a song that they were doing. He's... No, Dad, they were tuning, goofy guy, you know. So that was my upbringing, was silly moments like that. But what are they doing when they're tuning? They're trying to get unified and in sync, right? That's, that's the whole point. So that way it, we don't have someone that's a little flat here and a little sharp here, and that the conductor comes out and is like, oh, that sounds terrible, right? So they, they need to be unified and in tune. And so a lot of times what you'll have is an in-tune piano start with what? Middle C or something like that. And they play that, and then everybody kind of adjusts to this one in-tune piano and middle C. I think when you consider that question, like, yeah, I I love Jesus, but I I don't like the church. You know, could it be that it's because the church is not in tune with middle C? Could it be that if the church was in tune and we were unified around something that would sound beautiful and it would be so hard for the world around to start poking holes and throwing stones and jabs at the church. You know, I think that that's potentially what's going on in the world around us. I think what's happened is instead of tuning to middle C, what churches have unfortunately done is just tuned to the person next to them or to the world around them. And so then everybody's off because you're starting with not a true tuned instrument and everybody kind of crescendo effect afterwards is out of tune and out of place. So I want to ask this morning the question, what is the middle C of the church? What should we all be unified and in tune around? 
And if you looked at the sermon title in your bulletin, it's, it's the gospel. We should be a gospel-centered church, unified around the person of Jesus Christ. That's our middle C. So I want to look at three points that make this plain in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I want us to look at our hunger for God, our hope in God's promises, and our love for one another. This is how the gospel allows us to unify around these three ideas. The gospel of Jesus, our middle C, brings us unity by giving us a hunger for God, hope in God's promises, and love for one another. First, our hunger for God. If you would, I'm going to read verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some." but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This passage of Scripture, if you've been following along, is a summary statement of much of what we have already heard in the book of Hebrews. In fact, one commentator has pointed out, to much of the neglect of many other commentators, this passage of Scripture has about 19 to 20 similar phrases and words that have been used throughout earlier in the book of Hebrews. So in seven short verses, you have compact a very short, brief summary of what we've learned so far in this book. And what we see is that there are two sentences or two beginning statements that talk about what we have. We have this. We have this twice. And then what is sometimes referred to silly, kind of comically, the lettuce patch of the New Testament. Because there's three phrases, let us let us, let us. So the we haves are the basis and the foundation for the let us exhortations. And what we want to do is first see this first let us. Based on all that he's already said, and if, again, you've been following, you've heard these things, we have what? We have boldness. We have confidence to enter the very holy presence of God Almighty. Why? Oh, because of our great moral superiority or because of our sacrifices. No, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way to enter into the holy presence of God. For in fact, verse 20 says, by a new and living way, he has opened for us the curtain, not the physical curtain, but the flesh of his body, which is the final fulfillment of that curtain and that temple picture. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, the the curtain was torn in two, now symbolizing that the holy place is opened up? That's what's going on, and Hebrews is going to repeatedly here in this section say, he's opened up for us a new, a living way. We can come into the presence of a holy God. So then, what should we do? Verse 22, What's the practical application? Friends, make the most of this access, this open door that has been given to you. Let us then draw near 
to this holy God. In fact, this word draw near would have been the word used all through the Old Testament every time a priest would have been walking into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. Let us draw near. Read through Leviticus. I know it's a lot of fun reading Leviticus, right? I like to poke fun at Leviticus because it's the part of the Bible when you all are like, all right, January 1, I'm going to read through the whole Bible. Genesis is going well. There's a lot of fun stories. Exodus starts out with a bang. Then you get to Leviticus and everybody quits. Leviticus has a lot of laws in it. But in those laws, there's these exhortations and these commands given to the priests that if you're going to come into the Lord's presence and draw near to him, here are the stipulations for how that must be done. You see what he's doing here? All that he's already said, especially if you've been with us these previous weeks, be the high priest who draws near into the very holy presence of God. Draw near to him. Uses the same language that you see. This is what he's calling us to do. God has opened a door for us to be with him. So I ask, are we a gospel-centered, God-centered church at Embassy? Is God really the center of our worship, or have we been out of tune? Are we tuned to the things of this world and the, the ways to grow churches that we've kind of missed the whole point to begin with? Friends, I hope and pray that we would be a church that wants God. Like we just want to know Him, that we would hunger for God and to be in His presence. That we could agree with the psalmist who says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Friends, you can have a better day every day. Not just once a year like the priest on the Day of Atonement, but you, friend, all of you, from the least to the greatest we looked at last week, every single person, male and female, not just priests, but all of us can have a better day in the courts and in the presence of God Almighty. Friend, do you desire to be in God's presence? Do you want him? Do you hunger for him? That's our middle C. That's why we've gathered together here this morning. Did you really come here for great music or excellent oratory skills or great stories to entertain you? Friends, no. If you did, you came to the wrong place. We are not here to give you a show. And that's what so many churches are so out of tune doing. Let's draw in the masses by entertaining and tickling the ears of the people. Friends, we want to give you God, his word, his promises, his gospel. More than we want a Cubs World Series win. We want God. We want him in this community and in this world. We don't want to see acts of violence and evil on the news anymore. We want God to be all over this place, don't we? Do you hunger for him more than you want a promotion or money or human relationships? Ask your heart. Do you want to draw near to him? Are you feeling any stirring up within you when you sing songs about his great faithfulness that every morning by morning you're here today, you're living, you're breathing, you're alive. He's provided food for you. He's given you a shelter and a home and a family and loved ones. He has been good. Do you want to know this good God? Some of you may remember that about this time, two years ago, we met for the very first time ever as a church. So if you're new to us, we're a new church. We're brand new. This is a fun thing to start a brand new church from nothing. And so we gathered together in a room, and the first thing that I shared in terms of what would Embassy Church be about if we were, by God's grace, to be a church together, 
And since the majority of you were not in that meeting, a lot of you won't know that the very first thing I said is, the goal and the mission of Embassy Church is to glorify Jesus Christ, period. That's the goal. That's the mission. Why do we exist as a church? Why are we here? Why are we starting a new church? We want Christ. We want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings, as Paul says in Philippians 3. We want him. We don't want growth in numbers. That's not our goal. This is how I contrasted in that early meeting. Like, oh, so what kind of church are we going to be? You know, we're going to be a church that wants to be a mega church and grow. Like, that's our goal. Our, our goal is to be the next big mega church. There's plenty of mega churches. There are, even around here. That's not our goal. Our goal is not, let's be the next big mega church. If God blows up numbers, well, he blows up numbers. Hopefully, we just keep sending out and starting new churches. That's the goal. We want God. That's our focus. That's some sort of financial, pragmatic goal. If the finances are low, okay, the finances are low. We make cuts, but we can still have God. We don't need finances to have a church. We don't need a building to have a church. Jesus Christ has opened a way to God by his blood. That's why we're here. That's what unifies us. This is our middle C. Friends, I hope that if you're new to us this morning or Maybe you're a first-time visitor or you've been coming for a brief while. This is what we're about. This is what our church is about on Sunday mornings, why we worship together. This is how we order our services. We want to think, how can we be as simple and as mere as possible so that you don't get distracted by the things of this world? You know, we could put a big, huge band up here. We could invest our money in having just fantastic music, but does the world really need, are they starving for fantastic music? Is the hunger and longing in this world that we need some sort of great, big, multi-million dollar facility? The starving need of our hearts, friends, is a great, big God. The one who rules and reigns over the universe, who has made wonderful, amazing promises, has spoken to us through his word and has given us access through Jesus' blood. If we're going to draw near, I hope you see that the phrase is not Let you watch Phil preach. Let you watch Nate play music. Let you watch other... Let us. This corporate gathering is a combined community of people that are unified on this one simple desire. We want to know the living God. And because of that, we are together corporately worshiping God. This is not a spectator's event. That's why we're not trying to be flashy or entertain. We want you to participate in the worship. That's why every once in a while we just sing a hymn with a piano. And that way you can hear people singing around you. We want the the worship in this corporate body to be not so much the show up here, but the participation in the gathering together. So sing out, even if you can't sing well, even if you're vocally out of tune. Your heart can be in tune, because what this passage makes quite clear is that a singing voice or some sort of fantastic show is not what is required for worship. What is required for worship is a pure heart. See that in verse 22, let us draw near with a true, a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith. Assurance that verses 19 and 20 and 21 are true, that we have these things. We have 
access to God. We have a high priest who is interceding on our behalf. He is there for us so that we can boldly, confidently enter his presence. That's the full assurance of our faith. The only reason why we can sing songs, enter into his presence, worship God this morning is because of our faith in the blood of Jesus. A while back, I was paying attention to a friend of mine's prayers. I don't know if you learn from other people by the way they pray. I don't want to freak you all out to be like, I'm always listening to your prayers. Uh, Please don't take this the wrong way. But a a friend of mine, who's a pastor, I noticed every time he prayed, he started like this. Our Father, in the name and the blood of Jesus. Every time. It's like, it wasn't just like a a one-off thing. It was just, I think he said he wanted to remind himself that the only way I can pray to God is by the blood and access Jesus Christ provides. Our Father, I come to you in the name and in the blood of Jesus Christ. Is that the way you think this morning? That you have no business speaking, praying, listening, and being in God's presence? No business. No right. Our sin has separated us from a holy God, and we should be expelled from his presence. But his blood has covered over our sins, has opened a door for you to sing and pray and worship this holy God. So come with a true heart, cleansed conscience. It may seem a little tricky when you read in the English Standard Version here before you. It says evil conscience. Many other translators have just decided to use guilty conscience because it's really capturing the idea a whole lot better. One of the reasons why we don't draw near to God is because of our guilt, our shame, our feeling of dirty, ah, I can't, I can't pray to him now can't come to worship him now. Look at all the sin in my life. So many of us, I'm a pastor. I listen to you. You share confessions, not because we're Catholic and you have to share confessions to get sins forgiven, but because confession is a good way to grow and heal. And so that's one of the jobs of a pastor is to hear your confessions. So many of us, even in this room, we have guilt. We're walking around and we just feel terrible about the things we've done. And that hinders our ability to draw near to God if we do not have firmly the truths of verses 19, 20, and 21. Do you see how this flows here? You can't draw near to God unless you have verse 19. We have something. We have the blood of Jesus that washes away our guilty conscience. So draw near. We have the blood of Jesus and the life of Jesus that has been poured out for us and therefore access has been made. If you don't have verse 19 and 20 and 21, there's no point in saying draw near to God. So friend, I encourage you this morning, do not come to church thinking I need to leave my cares and burdens and concerns outside the door and then put on some happy face to say like, oh, everything's perfect in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We bring all of our cares, all of our concerns, and all of our burdens to the Lord in worship just as we are because we know he's big enough to handle every single one of them. Didn't he handle all of them on the cross? Didn't he pay for them once and for all? Isn't there no need for sacrifice of sins? Yes and amen, anyone? Amen. Yes. So therefore, we should... Draw near to God with a sincere heart. Point two, 
This gospel that unites us as middle sea, unites us with a hunger to know and worship God in his presence. Secondly, you see the let us in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We're united around our hunger for God and we're united secondly around our hope in God's promises. This word confession here is not like what I was referring to just a moment ago when I used the word confession to talk about confessing our sins. It's actually quite the opposite. This word confession would have been used all throughout the New Testament to talk about our public confession or profession of our faith in Jesus Christ. And a lot of people think that because it follows right after this phrase of being our bodies washed, you see that in verse 22, our bodies washed with pure water, and then a phrase about holding fast to our confession, water and confession, hmm, what could that possibly be? Baptism. That's what people do when they get baptized. They publicly, like in a body of water like this, or in a creek or a lake or something like this, around a gathering of Christians, they stand before them and they say, this is who I once was. But God in his mercy gave me the good news of verse 19, 20, and 21. That I can enter the holy places by his blood. That a new and living way has been given to me and the curtain has been torn and Jesus' flesh has been the means for me to worship God. And by faith, assured of that promise, I believe. I'm a Christian. That's a confession of faith. And so what he's Referring to here in verse 23 is for them to hold fast the confession that they made more than likely when they got baptized. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say, hold fast your confession? Well, again, if you've been with us, you'll know that this is another summary statement of what he's been saying the whole book. In fact, I would go so far to say this is like the main point of the book of Hebrews is statements like this in verse 23. Look just down your eyes in chapter 10 in verse 32 to give a frame of reference. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, so pause, the former days, they were enlightened, more than likely then they were baptized. They made a profession and a confession of faith that Jesus is their Lord. And then what happened? You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. And then he goes on to talk about their compassion for those in prison. And then you see that he says, you need endurance in verse 36. That's his point. The reason for writing this book and the reason why we have it is that in the face of trials, sufferings, challenges, Jesus Christ is our hope that we hold on to when everything around us seems to be giving way. He's our solid rock. He is the one that we trust in. So therefore, Embassy Church, are we a hope-centered church? If the gospel provides hope, is that what we're giving? Do the songs we sing, do the prayers we pray, do the sermons we preach, are they lists of to-dos or are they promises of hope? My guess is that in a room like this, there's probably some of you that have had a challenging week, month, year, life. Do you know what you need this morning? You need hope. You need a gospel. You need news. 
Not a, here's how to get through the tough time. Here's how to fix it and make your life better. No, you need hope. You need hope in a Savior. You need hope in a God who has a greater plan than what seems to be in your eyes right now. Oh, I can't make sense of what's happening in my life. It's okay. He's making sense of it. We need a God to hope in and not government leaders and their gun control policies. We need hope in God and his promises and not a new president of the United States. We need hope in God's promises to forgive our sins and that he will remember them no more. I know some of you need hope that the Jeremiah 31 promise that he will write his law and change your heart and put his spirit within you. You need that hope this morning. You need that for maybe someone next to you, someone else. Can God really change hearts? Yes, he really changes lives and hearts. He really transforms people because when people experience the presence of God, they do not remain the same. They're changed. They're transformed. He puts his spirit alive in them. Hope in the promise that God does in fact change hearts. Do not give up praying. Keep praying and persevering in the hope of the promise. Hold fast to the promises of God and your confession of faith. J. Gresham Mason, probably a name that maybe one of you have heard in this room. 1920s and 30s, he was a professor at, a, was it like Harvard or something? One of the Ivy League schools before they turned and stopped teaching that Jesus actually was the Son of God who lived and died and rose again from the dead. They used to teach that, by the way. And he was one of the professors during that time and kind of in the middle of a battle of like, is the Bible reliable or not? And in one of these excellent books he wrote, not necessarily excellent because like all of you should read it, it's a bestseller. It's not a bestseller, but its content is excellent. And if you could get what he's saying, it's so, so incredibly helpful. But it might take you a little work to read it. One small excerpt from that book. What I need is not your exhortations. What I need is a gospel. So stop giving me directions for how to save myself, but rather give me the knowledge of how God has saved me. I ask you, do you have any good news for me? I know your exhortations will not ultimately help me, but if anything has in fact been done to save me, will you please tell me the facts? Those questions were to a group of pastors and church leaders to say, friends, stop giving me a list of exhortations. Give me the news and the facts that there's hope in this world. That's what we need this morning. That's what you need. Weekly, daily, hope a God who's made promises and he fulfills those promises. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change. You know, I think the easiest way to understand this, just on a like, okay, there's, there's, there's the theological concept. God has made promises. Hold fast to his promises. But sometimes that head knowledge reaching down to your heart, uh, I'm not feeling it. A while ago, I remember hearing a really helpful illustration. I think I've used this before, but I think it's a lot like my children know me. You know, they know their dad. They know his character. They know what he's like. They know that in general, even though I'm not a perfect dad, that I love them, I care for them. And then if you kind of imagine a scene where we're walking through a, a dark hallway or some place where they feel kind of unsure, 
Dad, I'm a little scared right now. The answer for them is not for me to try and intellectually explain. Well, you see, son, daughter, this is what's going on. They don't have the intellectual capacity to kind of figure out all that's going on. Why is dad leading me down this dark hallway? I'm scared. I hear noises. Ah. What they need at that moment is the comfort and reassurance that dad's there. His presence is there. It's like the child reaching up and holding my hand and saying, okay, I may not know where I'm going or what in the world is going on around me, but I know my dad. And I got his hand. And I know that he will not lead me astray. Do you see that picture, friend? This is the picture for the trials, the struggles, and the suffering in your life. God has made promises. Is he a trustworthy God? Do we have good reason at all to believe that his promises are good? Reach out your hand by faith. And even though the world around you may seem dark and chaotic, and I can't understand what in the world's going on, you can trust the God who's made the promises. Why? Why should you hold on to his promises? Why do you know that he's faithful? Verse 19, 20, and 21. He has fulfilled all his promises in the Old Testament in Jesus Christ. The New Testament makes this quite plain. When God promised in the Old Testament, he fulfilled by coming and bringing Jesus into the world. Therefore, all promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus. So all you need to do when you're struggling and doubting and questioning is reach up your hand to the metaphorical cross that's bridging the gap between you and God. Hold on to the cross of Jesus Christ through your trials, struggles. That's the gospel. That's how the gospel becomes middle C. Don't you see this? We're all here together in different places and circumstances, but we all come and we hold and we cling on to the cross. It's our middle C. Thirdly, we come here together because of our hunger for God, our hope in His promises, and lastly, because of our love for one another. Look with me at verses 24 and 25, the final let us. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the different words in this sentence are quite incredible. First, notice the phrase consider. The writer of Hebrews has used this same word elsewhere in chapter 3. Again, if you remember, he used that to say consider Jesus. And this word is not just like give him a passing thought. It means to think thoroughly on and continually over, mull over on it. Now that makes a lot of sense in the unifying book of Hebrews to say, hey, Jesus is superior to angels. Jesus is the great high priest superior to Aaron. Jesus is superior to Moses. Consider Jesus. Don't consider the Old Testament regulations and peoples. Consider Jesus. Think on him much. But here, here he says, think long and hard about how you can stir up other people. Interesting. I mean, I just got to immediately confess, how well am I doing at that? Like this last week, hmm, have I spent time thinking long and hard about me, my little world, or how I might be able to help others? 
You know, I just think it's an interesting phrase here. Think long and hard and repeatedly. Give time and attention. In the same way that you would give time and attention to thinking much on Jesus, think on much of his bride, the church. But notice that it's not just think much generally. He gives more specific directions. Consider how to stir up or spur on or promote love and good works. And that's, again, another interesting word. The word stir or spur or promote, whatever different translations you might have read, this word is only used one other time in the whole New Testament, and this word in that context is in the book of Acts. When they're having an argument, it means sharp disagreement between people. That's what this word is. Isn't this interesting? Think long and hard how you can have sharp disagreements with one another. Whoa, now I'm understanding why I hate the church. Love Jesus, but the church, it's full of a bunch of people that spend all their time how they can have arguments with one another. That would be one way to read this. I think because it's saying stir up love and good deeds, it's not about having arguments so you can win a battle. It's because you love somebody. Because you're looking at middle C, you're looking at the gospel, and then you're looking at your brother or sister, and you're saying, friend, you're out of tune. And if they're out of tune, a lot of times they don't know it. True? Anybody been in church? Somebody singing? Oh, I'm singing well in tune. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Sometimes we don't realize how out of tune we are, and we need other people who are in tune to say, brother, sister, friend, I love you too much to let you keep on going out of tune like this. So therefore, conflict is going to happen if you take the steps to say, I love you too much. I'm going to engage in this conflict because I love you too much. Do you, do you see the idea here? It's, it's not because you're trying to win battles. It's not because I'm right and, and you're wrong necessarily. It's because you love someone so much, you can't let them keep going off. That road leads to destruction which we'll see in just a few moments next week when we get down to chapter 10, verse 26 and following. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God, verse 31 says. Judgment is more severe for people who turn away from Jesus than it was for people who turned away from the Old Testament sacrifices. If he judged then, how much more will he judge for those who have rejected Jesus? So therefore, think long and hard. Consider, how can you stir up and approach people who are out of tune? Lovingly, graciously, mercifully, not proud, not arrogant, but because you see them headed on a path of destruction. Confrontation to promote them to love God and do good works. I'm so thankful that one of the good things I can give testimony to is how enjoyable it is to be a part of a church family when they do want to stir each other up toward love and good works. Now, th this is why I can't agree with that statement. You know, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I'm sure some people have had some very, very negative experiences, and I know that not all the churches are the same. But man, this last year and a half has been a wonderful joy and blessing for me to see time and time again and can I just say from the bottom of my heart, thank you? Like, it's hard sometimes to go through life and, and not know, like, my wife's going into an emergency C-section eight weeks ago today. 
I wake up in the middle of the night to, hey, we're going to the hospital and having a baby seven weeks early. Hey, we're going to be in the hospital because the baby's going to be in there for the next six, seven, eight weeks. And what do I experience? A loving family of people that want to stir each other up to make sure that there's love and good works. This is like practical helping hands. That's what this phrase good works is saying. And I get to be the beneficiary of that at times. And so have you all. This is why church should be so incredibly beautiful because when we're in tune to Middle C and we see the flow of the gospel spreading out into love for one another like this, it is incredibly beautiful, glorious, and looks a little bit like Jesus. The meals, the prayers. I mean, I just, I don't even know the words to convey the, the feelings of emotion I had in those first two, three days. Every single time I got like a text or a Facebook message or an email, I'm praying for you, Phil. It just kind of welled up within me. Just all this like, God, you're so good. You love me so good through this body, this family of people. Have you experienced this, friends? Have you ever once experienced the gracious love of God, not just abstractly in words written on a page, but with hands and feet and loving meals and prayers. The love of God is not abstract. It's down to earth and real through his church as his church loves and cares for one another. So again, I thank you, Embassy Church. At such a time as this that my family would go through that sort of trial, what a wonderful group of people to be with. Sin will divide and separate the church. It will get us out of tune But it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that will unite us together, bring us around a common cause, and help us love one another. Therefore, we should not neglect meeting together. In fact, the phrase here again, I mean every word in these two sentences, it's do not forsake one another. Don't forsake each other. Keep meeting together regularly, habitually, so that you can continue to stir each other up confrontationally, and also encourage one another. And that encourage word means to come alongside of someone. So it's not like our church should only be about confrontation all the time. No, there's times for confrontation when someone's way out of tune, and there's times to lovingly, gently encourage and come alongside and say, I'm here with you. I will weep with those who weep. I will pray for you in your sorrows. That's a beautiful picture I pray that God would give us the grace that Embassy would be a church that multiplies that sort of church all over Chicago, all around the world, that we would pray and promote this all over the world and people would stop saying, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. If they were to see this, see the middle sea of the scriptures, this is not wrong, this is beautiful. The problem is our sin has separated us, it's divided us and it's fractured us and we're not confronting us in love or confronting in anger and pride and I'm right and you're wrong sort of stuff. And the solution to kill that separation is the wonderful blood of Jesus. Do you realize that the reason you and I can meet together regularly and not forsake one another is because Jesus Christ was forsaken. We can gather together and be unified in the presence of God because Jesus Christ was separated and shunned and forsaken from his Father. 
The same exact word about not forsaking was the same word used in the writer of Matthew in Matthew 27. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same exact word we'll read later in Hebrews 13 that says, God will not forsake you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, verse 5. We can gather together in his presence to encourage and build each other up because Jesus Christ was forsaken by the Father, by his blood, shed, the the veil was torn in two, and we now have access into his holy presence. Do you see the gospel? We have these things. We have a high priest. Therefore, let us draw near. Therefore, let us hold fast. Therefore, let us love one another. The blood of Jesus purchased for us is the middle sea that lets us be a church that's unified and gathered together for these things. Let's pray that he does that for us. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for the things that we already have now. Oh, dear God, we desperately need gratitude in our hearts. Reminders of what we do have in Jesus Christ now. Forgive us for the many ways that we look for many other temporary, fleeting, worthless things that we don't have, that we want and long. Our hearts have strayed, God. But you have given us access to your presence. You've given us cleansing of our sins and guilty consciences can be cleared. Thank you for these promises. Thank you for this hope. And thank you for a church community and family that can love one another with good deeds and experience that love in tangible, real ways. So we pray that your Holy Spirit will in fact do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we're going to do now is have a song playing. You can feel free to sing along whether you're in tune or out of tune. You can just listen along and meditate on the lyrics. We're going to pass communion cups now. Small cups of juice and bread. What's in these cups is not so important. It's not the, the actual elements themselves. It's what the, the substance of what they symbolize. And what they symbolize is that the veil was torn in two, that Jesus' blood has been spilt, and that there is now access for us to draw near. That's what we're going to do together. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you know Jesus Christ's blood covers your sins that you've professed your faith maybe at a baptismal pool like this, and you've said, yes, I believe in Jesus. If that's you this morning, we would just welcome you to take along with us the, the bread and the cup. Generally, I think it makes the most sense that members of the church should be taking communion together as a family. Those people who are taking communion together say, we are going to love and care for one another in these ways. So you might be a visitor, this might be your first time, but if you're a Christian, I want you to welcome feel welcome to take this remembrance with us. If you're not a Christian or you're not sure what that means, I would encourage you to just watch. This might be the time for you to be a spectator. Watch and observe. Listen to the songs that we sing and see if God does not nudge you a little bit and say, you know, time of being a spectator is over. Time to be a participant. But this this meal is for Christians, and I would encourage you to follow that. So we're going to sing together.